An adventure becomes more memorable when things happen. And interacting with people can turn an adventure into a story, the story of your life. Sam Manicom, author, speaker, and adventurer, spent eight years traveling the world by motorcycle. And over that time, he really learned the value of making a connection with people. And he's got some great stories about that today. Leon Logothetis rode his yellow sidecar motorcycle completely around the world, asking total strangers to help him out with food and fuel as he went along. He had a hidden agenda, though, an agenda that would change the lives of some of the people that helped him along the way. And photographer Todd Bluebaugh, he rode his bike across the U.S. in search of meaning. And as a result, he produced one of the most original coffee table books for motorcycles that we've seen. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregor W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schmutz. Red Tart. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ross. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. I'm Carol DeBell, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Sam Manicom spent eight years traveling the world on his R80GS, which is chronicled in his four books about adventure, Into Africa, Under Asian Skies, Distant Suns, and Tortillas to Totem. Sam, thanks for coming in today. Hello, Jim. It's really good to be with you. Well, it's because of your extensive travel experience that I want to talk to you about connection and kindness while you're traveling. And I'm sort of curious, would you agree that, that travel by motorcycle could be broken down into two main experiences? One, we could call the rolling adventure, which would be the scenery, the experience of riding, the sensation of going through new lands. The other would be when the motorcycle is stopped. And that would include sort of everything else, including meeting people, experiencing culture, making new friends, and, and sort of gaining a, a deeper understanding of the area you're traveling through. Does that make sense to you? 
In a way, it does. Um, I mean, I have friends who uh, overland and they do well, long journeys within their own countries and so on, and they simply don't want to meet people other than the border officials, the gas station attendants, the hoteliers, and oh, and a few fun people of the opposite sex, of course. <laughs> um, but, but their aim is to ride. Um, they want to challenge themselves and their bikes on long journeys, and they're just not interested in people. But, you know, I always get the sense from them that there's something missing, as in they didn't really catch all of the aspects of the possible buzz of a journey. And I also pick up that their journeys tend to be a little bit more stressful because there's something of a balance missing. And I think that... Um, often the people that they do talk to end up being sort of Snapchats of conversation in potentially hassled situations. And that means they, they never really seem to experience the joy of those people connections. On the other side, um, yeah, there are people who um, hit the roads and their main focus is to make connections with people. The American travel writer, um, Tim Cahill, said something that I really rather liked and it's a journey is best measured in friends rather than miles hmm. I, I'm wondering if there's not a balance to be I mean sort of to get the most out of if you're looking at you want to get the most out of your trip is would you think that there's a balance between that sort of rolling and static adventure that time on the bike and then the time off the bike Oh, absolutely. Without doubt. And, you know, I always have to remind myself when I'm talking about different ways of doing a journey that for me, it doesn't matter how a person travels or what they travel on or, or how they make their journey. What matters is that they travel any way that they can, because the journey is actually going to hopefully open eyes to new things and new possibilities, and new ways of doing things and so on. So when it comes to making connections, like, like think about the last time you went shopping. I know for me, you, you walk past all kinds of people, maybe hundreds of people without making any sort of connection. We all sort of go through life with our, our daily mask on, I guess you could say. And it's only when you drop that mask, when you make the connection, often it comes from, from you, doesn't it? Where you, where you actually have to step out and make a connection with somebody. But that connection, that, that little interaction that you have, that's how a story develops. And really, that's the story of your life, certainly on, on an adventure. Absolutely. Um, I think... We've talked before about how, for me, um, the first six weeks of a long trip are the most difficult. And the reason that they're the most difficult is because I'm coming from an environment where I'm working and I have deadlines to meet and I must do this now and um, preferably yesterday. And then I hit the road. And for those first six weeks, it takes me that long to shake that. And I find that I don't talk to an awful lot of people for those first six weeks unless I'm consciously making an effort to do it. But once I've rolled through that and I've slowed down and I'm taking time to smell the roses and I'm noticing individual people, strangers, then I'm much more inclined to start wanting to talk to them. I really enjoy the connections that I can make with somebody who's a complete stranger. I guess in part it's because it allows me to travel beneath the surface of wherever I am. One of the things that, um, if, if I'm just riding, riding, riding and enjoying the scenery and not really talking to anybody, then um, I'm traveling across the surface of a country. When I stop to talk to somebody, I'm getting the chance to talk to a real person and that's when the world feels like it's coming alive because 
I'm finding out about the history, the culture, the humor, the problems of the times, the quirky things and their top tips, that sort of thing from an individual. And I, I always think that's real information because it's inf information that's grown within that person over a period of time. And it's, it's all of those sorts of things that make that person as part of their own environment, if you're with me. It's not the information that you can get with the instant hit of a guidebook or TV or the mass media. I always think of it as it as being um, information with character. Um, yeah, of course, you know, it can be untrue or the information that they as individuals are giving you can be corrupted by the way a person has learned about something. But that actually makes the conversation even more real. Um, and when we know that something is being said that's, that we know is wrong, then I guess, I mean, for me, it makes me question again about the things that I think I know. Am I right? And by going through that process, a thinking process, I like to think it makes me a, a little bit less arrogant about the things that I feel I know. And it also, it, it, it'll, uh, it's even more than just finding out about culture or about someone's life. It can often lead to information that you would have never otherwise had. You meet somebody and they say, oh, did you, did you know that just down the road and you make a left, there's this thing to see and it's something you may have passed by otherwise. Oh, absolutely. Without doubt. I mean, Birgit's my partner and I, we've got so many examples of where we've talked to people, we've started conversations and a whole series of really special things have happened as a direct result. And one of them leaps straight into my mind is Birgit. Now, we're in Vietnam. Birgit's only five foot tall. So she really loves being in places where she's the same height as everybody else. <laughs> um, you know, Bolivia and Peru in the mountains, um, for example, were perfect for that. But so is Vietnam. We were in the mountains there and um, we were off the beaten track and um, all the, the local people there, they were indigenous tribal people and they wear the, the traditional tribal clothes as they have done for hundreds and hundreds of years. Anyway, we're walking down the street and um, Birgit sees three local girls walking towards her and she gives them this beaming smile. And I'm sort of standing slight to the side of her. So I see her do this and I watch the expressions change from from not involved to slightly startled to beaming smiles in return. And these three girls stop. And the conversation then starts between Birgit and the three girls without a single word being spoken. It's all been done with smiles and sign language. And Birgit walks over to these girls and she signs to them that she's really enjoying being with people who are the same height as she is. And I tell you, these three girls just cracked up laughing. They knew instantly what she meant. And then watching the four of them walking down the road together arm in arm was just, it was one of those golden travel moments. Um, and that was without a word being spoken. But the connection was made. And it's those connections that, that really make the story. I mean, you can only talk so much about, I've been to this campsite and I saw this beautiful scenery and boy, you should check out this road. The real stories that, that only manifest an adventure story, I think, is, is with people, isn't it? It's with people and taking the time to slow down and make an effort. But it's also, um, we Brits, for example, we, we tend to be pretty reserved unless we've got a few beers or glasses of wine down our necks, of course, and then we can become quite flamboyant. Um, but I don't know about Americans and Canadians, for example, but I tend to think that you guys are a little bit more likely to talk to strangers than we Brits are. So we have to make quite an effort to do it unless we're naturally gregarious. But by making that first step to go and talk to somebody, it's, it's like a whole new world of opportunities opens up in front of you. 
Now, when Birgit and I were down in southern Chile, we were on the Carretera Austral, which, by the way, is my um, all-time favorite road in the world. And some of the sections of the, the road right the way down through, there is no road because there's a field. There are small ferries that, um, that hop those, um, those gaps, sometimes only once a day, sometimes a couple of times a week. Anyway, we, we queued up and while we were standing in the queue, we were watching um, a young couple with their two um, daughters who were, I guess they must have been sort of seven, eight years old, that sort of age. And we were sort of eyeing them up and they'd taken notice of us. And um, when we got onto the ferry, Birgit started the conversation with Sarah and the two of them instantly gelled and there built a relationship and a whole series of learning opportunities that we never would have had had those two not started that conversation and a friendship started that has now been spanning for more than 20 years and it's seen us traveling to places that we never would have done it's introduced us to ways of life that neither of us had thought about before that conversation started for example Joe is a hunter for minerals. In simple language, he's a prospector. And his family traveled all over the world in search of new mineral resources. So there we are, um, having this conversation that's just beginning to blossom um, on a ferry, surrounded by a very gray world, gray and cold world. And we, we ended up staying with them in Santiago de, um, de Chile. Um, and while we were traveling up through South America, they were traveling back to live in the States again for a while. So we linked up with them again in Colorado. And that led to us spending time in a part of the world that we might not have done. But one of the gems from this friendship that came out was that Birgit and I were invited to do um, a presentation to a class of school children. And this was one of the most wonderful experiences. It's, it stands out really powerfully in my life. And it stands out powerfully because the kids in this class were like sponges about the world outside of the United States. The questions they were asking were just full of fascination and awe. And by the end of the, the class, I suspect that we've been a, bad, a bit of a bad influence. But that's one of the beauties of travel. Um, and if we hadn't started that conversation with Joe and Shara, that would never have happened. People are just brilliant, but we have to learn how to break the ice to begin with. And not only can you learn an awful lot about a place that you're at, not only can you have the warm glow that comes from friendship, uh, but it can save your life. I have a, a story that always gives me a tingle when I think about it. It comes from Thailand. Um, I was pretty much on my own. And I was staying in a cluster of bamboo cabins down on a white sand beach, you know, absolutely idyllic. I'd go to sleep at nighttime listening to the sound of the winds through the palm trees and the, the sound of the, the sea just lapping against the shore. It's absolutely perfect. Just drop dead gorgeous. There's, um, I don't know, eight or nine of these cabins. And you know, I sort of nod and say hello to people as I'm going past them. And there was one particular girl and um, we got into a conversation. And I just said to her, hey, I've seen you around for quite a lot. You seem to be here for a while. Are you on holiday or do you work in the area? And it turned out to be that um, she was a prostitute. And I said to her, so, well, how did you come to be a prostitute? And what are you doing here? And it turned out that she'd only been a prostitute for a very short period of time. She'd sort of heard about STDs and AIDS, but didn't know very much about it. And we ended up having a, a really long conversation about how she could protect herself and so on and so on. And as we did that, the story about how she came a prostitute came out. She was the top of her class. 
Her family were a Hill family, very poor, and they'd maxed out their funds to get her through school. And her teachers, she was top of the class and her teacher said she should go to university. But how on earth is a girl in that environment going to pay for that? And she was really keen to pay her parents back for all that they had done for her. And she decided the only way that she could do that was to become a prostitute. So we make friends and over the next um, three or four days, we see each other, we always have a chat. And then I suddenly get struck by a bug and it hits me really fast. Within a couple of hours, I'm in bed and I'm feeling wiped out. Within 36 hours, I'm so ill, I can't get out of bed. I finished all of the, the bottles of drinks that I'd collected when I felt the bug coming on. And the fever was so bad and I'd got so dehydrated, I'd stopped sweating. Kulap was the only one that noticed that my bike was still there, but that she hadn't seen me. And she broke my door down, which was a cultural no-no. You know, just, just don't do this sort of thing as a Thai woman. She found me really close to death. The doctors told me that another half day and I would have died. And she nursed me back to health. So if I hadn't had that conversation with her, if we hadn't had become friends because of that conversation, I probably wouldn't be holding this conversation with you. That's how important talking to strangers and the, just the joy and the things that you can learn. Uh, well, my goodness, how grateful I am to still be alive because she and I made friends. And of course, that was Sam Manicom. You can find out more about Sam at www.sam-manicom.com. And if you haven't read his four books, I highly recommend all four of them. And you can get them now in uh, in book format. But also, just recently, he just, I think, completed the last one in audio. So all his books in audio format. Tour USA is a motorcycle rental company based near Seattle, Washington, which they say is the perfect launching point for any West Coast trip in Canada or the United States. And uh, if you're coming from somewhere else and you're having a vacation or you want to take a vacation, don't have a lot of time, this can be a, a perfect setup for you to rent a bike because here's what they've got. They've got BMW F800 GSs, they've got the R1200 GS, they've got the KLR650, the BMW F700 GS, pretty much just choose whatever style of bike, whatever size you want, and away you go. And all their bikes are equipped for adventure, which means they come with Pelican cases and crash bars and protection for it to be ridden as an adventure motorcycle. These guys are motorcyclists, they're adventure riders, they know what you're after when you're looking to rent a bike to go on an adventure. Drop by their website, see what they have there, www.tourus.com. Us. That's one of those U.S. extensions. Should be easy to remember. But um, they also do guided tours and training tours. So you can rent a bike from them. You can take a tour, maybe take some training and head out on an adventure. www.tourusa.us. And make sure when you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Can you imagine living in a world in which you could travel around by a motorcycle fueled only by the kindness of strangers? Well, you may be surprised to hear this, but you already do. Leon Logothetis had an idea of traveling the world on the kindness of strangers to see if he could depend on random strangers to give from their hearts and help out a traveler. But Leon wasn't just asking for directions or a recommended restaurant or the local hostel. He was asking strangers to put fuel in his motorcycle, food in his belly, and at the end of each day, give him a place to sleep. 
Now, before your mind starts running away with this, Leon also had another twist. That unsuspecting Good Samaritans would receive a life-changing gift. That's Leon. And his idea was that he would travel around, ask people to give him things. And when he found the right person that was very giving, he would give something back. So if I met someone who was just so wonderful and so kind and so compassionate and had uh, and, and helped me in such a beautiful, profound way, I would give back to that person. And that, to me, was the beauty of the journey because it wasn't just about receiving kindness, it was about giving and receiving. And now with a movie series out on Netflix called The Kindness Diaries and a book with the same name, Leon is trying to spread the word about kindness, giving and receiving around the world. Leon Logvitis. I'm from London, but I live in Los Angeles, and I am an author and a uh, TV host. Leon, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks for having me. Before you develop this new lifestyle with the books and being a TV host, where do you come from? Who was Leon before um, kindness, before finding kindness? It's a great question. I, I used to be a broker in the city of London. Um, and on the outside, I, I had I had pretty much everything I could want. Uh, on the inside, I had pretty much nothing of what anyone would want. Um, and I was very depressed. Uh, no real sense of purpose. No connection. No real like hope, to be honest. And um, I stumbled across the movie The Motorcycle Diaries, which is a romanticized version of Che Guevara traveling across South America, relying entirely on the kindness of strangers. And there was something about that movie that really inspired me. I realized that there was another way to live. I didn't have to sit behind my desk and be soulless. Um, not there's anything wrong with sitting behind a desk because just for me, it was that, it was that for me. Um, and I decided that I was going to go out and try and live my best life. So I quit my job and I started traveling the world. So I, I know I sense some inherent problems here because if you once you quit your job, you've cut off that financial support. What do you do for that? That's a very good question. Um, and look, you know, like I said, I, 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 I had I had the means to do what I did, and that gave me an advantage. Um, so I used that means uh, as wisely as I could. Um, I ended up actually after a few years of, of the traveling, I ended up moving to Los Angeles. And I started to uh, work and, and run a TV production company. So I, I, I did end up uh, going back, not to corporate, but going back to, to that kind of life for a few years until I finally let it all go a couple of years ago. What happened? Well, what happened was that I uh, had enough again. <laughs> and um, basically, I, I did a journey where I, I, I hitchhiked across America on $5 a day. So relying on the kinds of strangers uh, and I ended up, it was from Times Square to the Hollywood sign and I ended up in LA and I ended up staying. Um, and you know, I needed to, to try and support myself again. So I ran this uh, production company for a couple of years. Um, but again, I was, I found myself like not living the life that I really felt inspired to live. Um, and that was when I decided that it was time to fully, 
uh, leave that world and uh, start start writing books, start uh, kind of doing my speak my speaking engagements, and that's when I just stopped living behind a desk. Even though as we get, as I give you this little chat, I'm behind a desk. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we, we do have to do that sometimes, but ultimately you end up riding a, a motorcycle and with a sidecar around the world. You produce a book called The Kindness Diaries. But I, I'm sort of curious, like at that start, when you, you talked about doing this this um, walk across America on $5 a day, what's the fascination with kindness? Are, are you searching for something, some sort of feedback from from people in general to give you some sort of reassurance? Or what is it you're searching for? It's a great question. And uh, when I, when I was a kid... I suffered uh, from bullying pretty badly, and I know there were many people out there that that have suffered. And um, I, I realized that I, you know, people often disempower you, and I couldn't, as a kid, I couldn't understand like why why are you disempowering me? Like what have I done to you to deserve this? And I made a decision in my life that I would do my best to empower people. Uh, now, now that doesn't mean that I do it perfectly, um, but I also made a decision that I was going to do my best to come from a place of compassion and empathy. Again, doesn't mean I do it perfectly because I don't. And that's really where it started from. So there was like a deficit of compassion and a deficit of kindness I felt as a kid. And I, and I wanted to do my little small part to, to, to share the beauty of uh, being seen, the beauty of uh, someone you know, understanding you and some, someone showing you compassion. So it definitely came from, 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 from pain. So the underlying thought process then is that you sort of believe that really people are good and they have good intentions, even though there are the few that look otherwise. Absolutely. I mean, look, you know, I watch the news like everyone else does or like many of us do. I see bad things that happen. I've also traveled the world. I've seen bad things. Um, But that doesn't mean that good things don't happen too. I I think what we often do is we put a magnifying glass onto all the bad things. And we totally forget that there's a, like a river of generosity and kindness and compassion and empathy that really binds us together. And sometimes you can see that when a tragedy happens. Everyone comes together. Yet why do we need a tragedy to happen in order for us to come together? That's, that's really why I do what I do. I want to just share with people that you, know, you can go out into the world and you really can change your life. You can change your life by how you show up. Uh, again, not perfectly, but uh, you, can, you can change your life. It is interesting how what you focus on becomes the most real to you, isn't it? I mean, people will focus on the bad things in the news or the bad things going on in their life, and it appears that that's all there is because that's what you're you're concentrating on. Yeah, it's very true. And, and look, you've got to be careful not to not to uh, you know concentrate on one thing and then believe that the other thing doesn't exist because you know it it would be easy for me to just concentrate on all the kindness and the compassion and all this and and be like totally unaware of all the bad stuff that happens because bad stuff does happen. I think there has to be a balance. I've often referred to that as the the Volkswagen effect because I I relate to vehicles. I think you never notice how many, well, back in the day, Volkswagen bugs there were on the road until you had one. And then all of a sudden they're everywhere. They were there the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's true. So what precipitated this trip on a motorcycle to discover more kindness? You know, I was... um, working behind the desk again, not in London, in LA. And I happened to be walking down Hollywood Boulevard. uh, And I saw this chap, this homeless man with a sign that said, kindness is the best medicine. 
And there was something about that moment that really touched my touched me in a profound way. Um, because again, I was struggling. I was sitting behind this desk. I was again on the outside. I had what I needed, and on the inside, it was I was flailing a little bit. And I realized that kindness is a two-way street. It's uh, about giving uh, and about receiving. Um, and that was kind of what sparked that journey. Uh, obviously, I'd watched the Motorcycle Diaries, which was a, a motorbike journey. And I've always liked motorbikes. I feel very free on a motorbike. Um, and I kind of just decided, well, why not? Yellow motorbike with sidecar around the world. Let's see if we can do it. Okay, so where does the yellow motorbike with a sidecar come in? <laughs> Do you know what? I had the option of, of buying like a, a, a motorbike that, um, you know, wouldn't break down every day. Um, uh, but it didn't have the same allure to me that a yellow motorbike with a sidecar that was like built in 1978 had. Because the motorbike became a character. And I knew that when I traveled... If I had an, uh, a yellow motorbike with a sidecar, it would be a great conversation starter. Um, and this was all about conversation starting, really. It was all about, um, you know, the power of hello. And uh, the yellow motorbike is a beautiful way to say hello to each other. And that's interesting because a lot of travelers say that, you know, their best experiences happen when they have a breakdown. So, so this is, <laughs> this is set up for you to have some incredible experience, but what was the premise of the trip? What did you, what did you plan it as? Yeah, sure. Well, the premise of the trip was that I was going to drive from Los Angeles all the way around the world back to Los Angeles. Um, and I was going to do it on kindness. I would have no money. You could not give me money. It was just an act of generosity that could get me from A to B. But there was a twist, and the twist was that unsuspecting good Samaritans would receive a life-changing gift. So if, if I met someone who was just so wonderful and so kind and so compassionate and, had, uh, and, and helped me in such a beautiful, profound way, I would give back to that person. And that, to me, was the beauty of the journey because it wasn't just about receiving kindness. It was about giving and receiving. I got to tell you, when I started to read your book, The Kindness Diaries, the star of it, I'm thinking, come on, are you serious? Do you really think this is going to happen? You're standing there on a street in Los Angeles with a gas can and you're asking somebody to give you gas, but you managed to find it. No, I mean, I mean look, when I left my house that first day, I was like, what on earth am I doing? This is insane. I I've lost my mind. There is no way that I'm going to be able to do this. But I'd already set it up and I'd already kind of like, you know, pushed myself to the limit. Everything had been, you know, set up and I had no choice but to keep going. But now as I look back at it, it feels like a dream. It feels like, wow, did that actually happen? Did I actually go around the world? And I did. And I, I did it because there were so many amazing people. Yeah, there were quite a few not so amazing people as well. And that's fine. But there were so many amazing people and there was just this connectivity that was just beautiful and uh, I, I managed to do it because of that otherwise I would never have been able to get anywhere near uh, going around the world it would have been impossible but there's a stigma attached to asking people for something on the street and, you know, I think probably anywhere you went people are going to see you as a beggar trying to you know get something for nothing how do you overcome that sure the first way I overcame that was I couldn't accept money 
So I made it very clear from day one in all the journeys I've done, I can't accept money. So you can't give me money. Um, you can only give me generosity and, and you can only give me um, from your heart. And that's it. And, and, and I agree, it is, a, it is a stigma, it is challenging to go up to people on the street, but it depends how you go up to them. And again, that goes back to the yellow motorbike. If you have a yellow motorbike with a sidecar that looks like my bike did, people want to talk to you. And uh, it's, it's, it, it, it helps, it really helps. And that was one of the main reasons why I did that, because I knew that the bike would be a conversation starter. You say yellow motorbike, what kind of bike is this? It's a Chang Jang 1978, which is basically like the Ural, um, but uh, but from China. However, it does have a BMW engine in it. So there's some sort of familiar thing there if you happen to have a breakdown that somebody can help you out with. Because the, the Chinese motorcycle I don't think would be very popular, at least not in the Western world. No, absolutely. And that is another reason why I chose it. Because even though it's a vintage bike, it was very easy to fix. Uh, and I knew that uh, I could, you know, tighten it up and, and fix it to a certain degree. Um, but if there was a serious problem, I wouldn't have to wait for parts. Someone would pretty much be able to fix it anywhere in the world. The idea of this trip, to try and make it around the world and have to ask for everything you need, that means you have to interact with people. It means you have to have conversations. I mean, if I was to sit down and do the math in my head, I think I would just immediately think, this is not possible. I mean, there's not, the people aren't that kind. You know, you're not going to get that quick of a response. How long did it take to do this? The whole journey took just under six months. You see, that, like five, that blows me away. That, that really blows me away because I, either you developed a method for it or you found a lot of good people. Look, you know, there were times when I wouldn't be helped for hours and hours and hours. Obviously, there were many times when I was traveling. Um, but you, you find that one person and then that one person puts you in touch with someone else. And then that other person puts you in touch with someone else. Obviously, that, and that chain keeps going. There are times when the chain breaks, of course. Um, but that's really how it worked. You know, like I would, I would, I would end up with staying someone, staying with someone in the night in the morning, they'd give me some gas and they'd say, Hey, go there and meet this chap. And I would do that. And, and what about for the, you know, the cold calls when you're, you're there and you don't have any contacts, did you develop a method for it, a, a way to maybe spot the right person or a way to approach people in general that, that seemed to work? Absolutely. I mean, ultimately, uh, all my travels have given me a sixth sense, I say. I, I would say we all have it, but some of us, it may not be as um, as pronounced as it is with me simply because I've traveled so much. I know who to speak to. I know who not to speak to. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. But like I said, with the bike, whenever I had the bike, people would just come up to me and we'd talk. And, and, and sometimes it'd help. Sometimes they wouldn't. It'd be sometimes a little bit harder when, they, when the bike wasn't there because obviously I could, you know, if I was in the city, for example, in Chicago, I'd have to park the bike on the street and walk around and the bike wouldn't be there. And then it would be a little bit more challenging. But I'd just explain what I was doing. And and uh, it's it's something that I'm used to doing these days. Were you searching for the kindness in people or would it be the people with kindness? Oh, it's an interesting question. Um, I think both. I, I guess yeah. what I'm asking is, I mean, is everyone capable of doing this? I, I mean, I guess they're capable, you know, if we think of it, you know, physically and mentally, we're capable of being kind, but does everyone have it in them? Look, some people don't. Um, maybe that's a lot of pain that they've had as kids and it, 
they're lost and that's okay. And, but many, many of us do and many people do. Um, I know that prior to, to doing all my journeys, my levels of compassion and kindness were not particularly high. Um, but as I did my journeys, they got higher because I met all these people and they opened my heart. Um, and others can do that too. Where did you go? What, what was your rough route? The rough route was uh, to New York, New York to Barcelona, Barcelona to Vietnam, Vietnam to Vancouver, Vancouver to L.A. And where did you find it easiest to get people to help you? Um, I'd say America, actually. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, the Americans, every time I've done my journeys across America, there's, there's this generosity of spirit that's so beautiful. Is that because you have an English accent? I would think that that may just very well be the case. <laughs> Although Americans, you know, I know the English accent helps. There's no doubt about that. But uh, I just think the Americans do, in many ways, have this generosity about them and the giving spirit. Not everyone, but many of them. You mentioned that you were going to give some life-changing thing back to certain people that helped you out. Can you tell us a couple of those? Yeah, sure. So um, I ended up in Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. Um, and I was going up to people and, you know, asking them to, uh, if I could stay in their houses and <laughs> most of them were saying, no, of course, like, again, I, you know, I gave my whole background, um, I showed them the bike and all this kind of stuff. I just didn't randomly go up to them. Although sometimes I did. Um, and I met this chap and I said to him, can I stay in your house? And he, he said to me, look, I'm really sorry, but I'm homeless. And in that moment I felt some shame. I was like, okay, I'm doing a social experiment. This chap is, um, really homeless. But he then turns around and does something amazing. He says, look, if you, if you want to come and stay with me tonight, I'll protect you. I'll feed you. I'll give you some clothes. And I thought to myself, wow, do I really want to sleep on the streets of Pittsburgh? And, you know, 99.9% of my, my bones was like, no, you don't. But there was this voice inside that said, yes, you do. You have to go and stay with this man. So I did. I slept on the streets with him for one night. He uh, fed me. He um, protected me. Uh, as you will see from the first chapter, the first paragraph of the book, um, and he gave me some uh, some clothes, and uh, he taught me that true wealth is not in our wallets, but it's in our hearts. Does that mean that money is not important? Absolutely not. Money is very important. Safety is very important, but the truest of wealth is in our hearts. And the next morning, uh, I took him in the bike. I said to him, I said his name was Tony. I said to him, Tony. T- Take me somewhere where you felt loved. And he thinks about it for a minute. And he goes, you know what? I felt loved at school. And I was like, okay, let's go to your school. So he gets in the car, in the sidecar. I take him to uh, his school. And I tell him what I'm really doing, which is, you know, giving back. Um, and I, I get the honor and the pleasure of being able to put him up in an apartment and send him back to school. He wanted to become a chef. But, you know, we still stay in touch. And he always says to me, Tony, he says to me, Leon, you changed my life. And I always say to him, I say, Tony, it is you who changed my life because he opened up my heart to such a degree. Um, and it was just a beautiful thing. Wow. So, so he's going through to be a chef now. He, yes, he spent uh, time learning how to be a chef. Absolutely. Wow. That's incredible. That is really neat. And how many times did you do this on the trip? Um... 14, 13 times. Wow. 13 times in, in just under six months. Yeah. And you can actually watch the show on Netflix. It's called Kindness Diaries, and uh, it's on Netflix right now. 
I was going to ask about that. So what do you do for filming it? How, is there a film crew that goes with you? Or are you filming it yourself? Yeah, there's a, a small film crew, um, uh, three to four people. Because in some of the countries we had fixers that, that would help with the crew. Um, so there's about three or four people that were followed. And how does that work? How do you think the crew affects the outcome of what you're doing on the street? Yeah, it's a great question. Look, I think in certain situations, the, the crew help, you know, and in certain situations, they don't. But they help because it enables people to feel safe. Um, and they don't help because, believe it or not, not everyone likes to be filmed. So many people were like, no, I'm sorry, um, I'm not prepared to be filmed. Um, uh, so ultimately, overall, I would say that it did help. Um, but there were many moments when, uh, when, when they were like, look, take, turn the cameras off. Oh, we never really, we never actually turned them on without that permission, but they didn't, they didn't want cameras. What did you learn about motorcycling while you were on this trip? I learned that fatigue is part of the, the game. Um, you know, it's, it's like a car, when you drive a car, sometimes, you know, for hours and hours, it's tiring. But it's nothing compared to um, to getting on a motorbike and and driving. The bike isn't very fast. It didn't go over. You could do sixty five, but I was fifty seven, sixty most of the time. Uh, it was relatively comfortable, but still a lot of fatigue. And and how did you get the bike? And you for ocean crossings, for all those technical things, the border crossings, was that all unkindness? That's an, uh, that's a great question. Um, so what I ended up having to pay for was obviously all the visas. So for me, I had to pay for the visas because to arrive, let's say, at the Turkish border and uh, without a visa and say, oh, could <laughs> would you, you help me, me out? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not going to happen. They're going to yeah. be like, no, sorry, goodbye. So, you know, I, I, I arranged all the visas and the bike had a passport. So it's called a carne um, and I had to pay for that as well. Um the crossings on the ocean, prior to the journey starting, I called up many uh, shipping companies, um, and they all said no, which is, which is fine, except one, and they said yes. And uh, I ended up crossing the oceans with them. So what's the takeaway from all this? Uh, the, the takeaway is really, you know, if you have a dream and you have a, a passion and you have a commitment to live that dream, that passion, anything is possible. It just so happened that I wanted to travel the world. And I wanted to be inspired by kindness. But that's just my dream. Other people's dreams are different. And, you know, whatever it may be, you want to open a bakery, you want to be a broker, you want to, whatever you want to do, if you have a commitment to that way of living, nothing can stop you. Just keep going. But it needs a commitment. And that's why most people don't live their dreams, because they're not fully, fully committed. Leon, great to talk to you. I love what you're doing. Thanks very much. All right, man. Perfect. Thanks so much. I've been speaking with Leon Logothetis, and you can find out more about Leon by visiting his website, www.leonlogothetis.com. And you can also watch The Kindness Diaries on Netflix. They're playing right now if you sign up for that. And you can get his book at, well, where books are sold. It's The Kindness Diaries.
Coming up next, we have Todd Bluebaugh and the story of his book, Too Far Gone, a trip across the United States in search of discovery. Stay with us. IMS Products has been around since 1976, building quality parts for motorcycles. They're known around the world for products built by racers for racers. And IMS now has a complete line of foot pegs. Listen, if you're standing on the stock pegs that came with your adventure bike, for adventure riding, I strongly suggest that you try a larger set of pegs at the very least. And you really should look at the IMS foot pegs because they manufacture them out of 17.4 stainless steel and they're specifically designed for adventure bikes, top to bottom. Right now, I'm riding with the IMS Rally foot pegs, which are four and five eighths inches wide, that's going outward from the side, and two and a quarter inches long, that's front to back. The pegs made a huge difference in how I handle my bike. And if you haven't tried it, you've got to get some wider pegs on there. They've got a a full range of pegs from this on up to a really large platform. IMS Products, www.imsproducts.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, Aerostitch still runs the Ride More Guarantee, which is if you try any Aerostitch one-piece R3 or Roadcrafter classic riding suit for one month, and you're not riding more than you did before you received it, you can send it back and get a full refund. No questions asked. How can you ask for more than that? You, you, I mean, you have the chance to try the suit out, and they're so confident you're going to love it that they're going to give you your money back and not ask any questions if you don't like it. And if you get a chance, drop by their website, www.arrowstitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, that forward slash ARR lets them know you came from Adventure Rider Radio. It'll also get you 10% off your first order or if you're a repeat customer, free shipping on your next order. So keep that in mind when you're going there. It says www.arrowstitch.com forward slash ARR. And anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Todd Bluebaugh lives in Los Angeles, California. He's a photographer and a bike builder, and he set out to crisscross the United States on a journey of self-discovery and adventure. He photographed the journey, and when he came back, he produced an incredible motorcycle coffee table book called Too Far Gone. It's about his trip, the people he met, and motorcycle culture. Now, Todd rode an adventure bike for this trip by his own description. Yes, by every letter of the word, it is an adventure bike. Although it may be one of the least likely adventure bikes you've seen to date. Yeah, it's a 76 uh, FXE. That's a Harley Davidson in case you didn't pick that up. And after Todd was done modifying it, most people would call it a chopper. Well, my name is Todd Bluebaugh, and I don't know exactly what I do. I tell everybody I do whatever I have to do. And um, I'm a writer, photographer. Uh, I work on cars and bikes, and uh, most of my income is from the entertainment industry, uh, doing any of the many jobs that need to be done. (laughs) Todd, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So what is this bike you're riding? 
Uh, well, I'm assuming you're meaning the bike that I'm riding. I rode in the book. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a 76, uh, FXE that I acquired from my buddy, Bill in Washington, who, uh, he thought it was the ugliest thing he'd ever seen in fact, and said, I think there's a bike under there. Good luck. And that's, I made it into what you see there on the cover. Which is no longer uh, an ugly machine. This bike, this shovel head, would you call this an adventure bike? (laughs) Yes. Uh, By every letter of the word, it is an adventure bike. Um, It's probably the stupidest thing to take that bike on the trip, but uh, it's what I, I had been working on and I really enjoy the way it handles it. It rides like a very small, tight kind of racy bike. Uh, but you throw a pack on the back in the right place and you'd be surprised. You become very comfortable on it. What kind of mods have you done to the bike? Well, the whole thing was a mod. I mean, from the frame to the front end, uh, I'll just, I'll start with the front end. It was, it's actually a Honda front end from a, um, from an XL 500, that that bike originally, uh, it had a 23 inch tire on it, which was a, a a kind of a rare thing. I'm not running that tire on it, um, but uh, the, we had a few of these stacked up in the shop because people take them off and put different front ends on. But I had that, so I used the the fork tubes from that and cut them down um, a lot. In fact, to get the the stance right, it's like almost seven inches and uh but i like because they they have a leading axle and they are preloadable with air so uh they perform really well and i needed that leading axle because when i built a frame for the shovel head i i took an inch out of the length of it uh basically from neck to axle so um i needed to replace some of that distance and by sticking the front tire out the the bike became stable at, at high speeds. I had a friend that does land speed racing and I called him when I was building it and I told him what I had done and he was like, well, why would you do that? And I go, well, I want to make it smaller and fit in, you know, tight spaces. And I just like the idea of making a small bike. Everybody's making these very long bikes. And he goes, well, what would it be? I told him, you know, it's just over five feet axle to axle. And he's like, yeah, you should be okay at 80 miles an hour. Uh, which is fast for one of these bikes, by the way. <laughs> I'm not not land speed racing the thing, but so then that was my roller there, and uh, there's a lot of little fabrication projects to make up for the room that I had taken out uh, between the transmission and the the frame, and then the you know, the oil bag, everything goes out the window there. And by looking at it, you would think it'd be stock, but people are like, why is that so small? And you have, you explain, oh, I took it out of here and then put it back there. And yeah, the whole thing was a custom project. You describe this as an adventure bike. If someone was to look at this, this picture that I'm looking at right now, I, I doubt that they would come up with that right away. But knowing what you built this bike for and what you did with it, clearly identifies it as sort of an, an ultimate adventure bike. You ended up doing, a, I think it was a, a six months trip. Can you tell us what that was all about? Yes. Uh, that was, um, 
in the summer of 2013 in June, I, uh, had a previous, I guess it was, I was almost eight. It was coming up on eight years, been working as in-house as a, a photographer there in Seattle. And I was very close to paving my own way. Uh, during that time, my roommate had acquired a motorcycle shop that he worked at for a while. And then the owner passed it on to him and we were making traction in there and I moved my studio into a shop and I was kind of consolidating these two sides of my life, which felt good. I mean, that always feels good for anybody to do. So I was getting ready to do this trip to kind of kick that new leaf over and a week before I was going to leave and the, and the, the trip was very loosely planned. It was just going to be down to uh, Southern California and back at that point. I had been doing that trip every year with my friends. And um, there was a design firm in town that knew I was leaving my job and they wanted to break into book, uh, the book world. And they do just amazing, complicated, interactive design. So that was it. It was very loose, a loose concept of I was going to basically make a wallpaper book. There wasn't any written story to it or anything like that. It was a visual. But a week before I was to leave on that trip, I lost my parents in a car accident back in Kansas. And at that point, I had to fly home, obviously, and clean up that whole situation with my sister. And uh, I really didn't think I could go uh, just because of, of the responsibilities that were stacking up there. And mentally, I wasn't in a, a state to focus on the continual problem solving of traveling by motorcycle. And also uh, I didn't feel like my bike was ready. I had been pulled out of the game and, but uh, I got home my buddy Dallin picked me up from the airport and then um, he's like, Hey, we want to leave tomorrow. Uh, Do you want to do this? And up until the very second that we left, I didn't know if I could, I just kind of wanted to curl up in bed and figure things out. But I'm so glad I left. It changed my life. And we made that first leg of the trip all together with my friends and I felt better immediately. And we went down to Southern California and then they all turned around and went back after a week. And I ended up staying and meeting everyone that I live with now. And, uh, I rode on to the other coast and back and wrote the book. And it wasn't until I was coming back that I had all this content that I had been generating and um, story that had been unfolding. And I sat down in my parents' house. Well, obviously, it would, that was hard to be there. But I set it all out and I started constructing the idea of this book. And then Bell & Whistle did an excellent job of making it. And uh, Ginkgo Press then um, became the super publisher that put it out. And they figured out a way to do all the little details and complicated pieces of construction that Bell & Whistle came up with. And that's how it happened. So the trip, you, you spent six months going across the country. What was the premise with the trip? I mean, you rode with your friends to Southern California, like you said, and then you sort of continued on from there. What was the point? Or what was the reason? There's always this calling home, not calling like on a cell phone call, but you always feel you're being irresponsible if you're not heading back home at a certain point. Uh, 
Do you know what I, does, does that make sense? Yeah. And probably work as well. Right. I mean, you think, you know, I, yeah. be, I have to be responsible. I've got to get back and do my job and convince my career and all that stuff. I should be working right yeah. now. Yeah. And, and in a way that I was, I created a tremendous amount of work for myself, believe it or not. But it took a while for that to fall off and to settle into this idea of, all right, you're not going back, make this count. Um, you may not do this again in your lifetime. So once I could separate myself from that, uh, the trip just became whatever. It's like, Hey, let's go up to Bonneville or let's go down to wherever we wanted to see. And, and at that point uh, I had met up with my traveling companion, um, Ethan Fowler, who I met in California and, uh, we just set off he, he, the night I was leaving. He came to tell me goodbye or the night before. And I suggested that he go with me because I got to know him pretty good in the last month. And he was kind of ready to do something like this. And I needed someone at that point. And that just worked out. Is, is this sort of like a, like an easy rider type of thing? I mean, you're getting on your bikes and you're just heading out to wherever. It really was. And it's funny that that influence, I mean, everybody was influenced by Easy Rider sure. as a kid. They was into motorcycles. Like that, whether you like that movie or not, uh, you watched it and it, and it fired you up every time you heard the soundtrack and you saw, it's funny you should mention that because Dennis Hopper is, uh, he's an idol of mine. And cause we're both from Kansas. We come from the same place and I've always looked up to him and, uh, he was a photographer, an artist, and filmmaker, a storyteller, essentially. And uh, and so Easy Rider was really powerful to me. And that's exactly what this trip turned into. I mean, we weren't running cocaine and drug money, but we were we were out for an adventure. Well, if you were, you wouldn't have had to worry about getting back to work. <laughs> that's true. Yes, <laughs> you'd be doing your work. So you headed out and you're sort of open-ended. What do you do with meeting people? Like, how do you choose where you're going and what do you do when you get there? It's really easy, in fact, when you ride one of these old bikes because every gas stop you make, which is every hour, because I only have two gallons in my tank, if that. And uh, you get a new story and you, you're introduced to someone new. And you start to realize that Americans just love to travel. They love to see it happening. They love the idea of it. And um, it's all based around convenience, not the experience. And you see a bike like this loaded up with everything on it that you need, which isn't much. And it flips a switch in their head and they have to talk about it and ask about it. I think to get their own confidence possibly to go do it but uh so every time you pull over a really great conversation happens that usually leads to somewhere you should go or someone else you should meet and um i found that that's the best way to navigate the country the chance encounter you had your camera with you you're you're taking photographs the whole time do you, you photograph the people you meet yeah i had two cameras i and um it, it taught me a lot about taking someone's picture, someone new. There's etiquette. There's obviously there is. I, I've known that before, but in the kind of journalistic style, we're really trying to to meet these 
people because they are a part of the trip and they are a part the next part of your trip as well. Uh, you talk, you get to know them, they see the camera, they ask questions about that. And then you very politely ask them if, uh, they mind if you take your picture and, uh, tell them what they're up to. And at that point, um, they see you more as a person and less of this, this soul sucking machine and, you can you can get a good portrait out of them or a good moment from there. Are you shooting film? I was shoot I was shoot shooting about fifty fifty. I had a Nikon F three and uh, plenty of Ilford stock, and then I had my Canon five D Mark two for when I was out of film, which was a lot of t- at the time, and a lot of my film got destroyed too because I'm I was just uh, the conditions were rough on gear. I, there were two separate times I had to get my my 5D Mark II serviced on the road because it uh, it just took a little too much abuse. Now you're camping as you go along. Or are you staying in hotels? Uh, we camped and we stayed with friends most of the time because that's like I said, that's what kind of navigated the trip. And someone say, "Hey, you got to go check out so and so. They have a shop and and." Um, uh, so we'd, we'd stay with people that we'd meet along the way. Uh, that was really nice. I'll admit that, and I shouldn't be ashamed of this, I think it's a wonderful community, but Instagram was incredible because people kind of was for following your journey and they'd say, send you a message saying, hey, you should go check out my friend. They know you're coming. And uh, it's, a, it's also a great tool for traveling. It's interesting. That's why I asked about the bike right out of the gate, because it seems to me from your story that the bike really made the trip, didn't it? I mean, you're even saying about the the limited gas supply. Most people with a a bike for travel, they're going to worry about, oh, I've got to carry all kinds of fuel so I don't have to stop much. You're going to do a gas station every couple of hours, but that's sort of what made your trip. Yeah, every hour. I mean, that's how much you had to stop. I don't have a gas gauge. So my, my, I, wa- I watch my, my watch, you know, it's just oh, it's hour. I'm, I'm getting low and sure enough, you're down to the very bottom of the tank. And the, it, it's not a convenient way to travel. If you're looking for convenience, then no, go buy, you know, a station wagon or something with a hatchback or a SUV and throw everything but the kitchen sink in there. But if you're looking for an experience, uh, you fight for every mile on these old bikes. And that's what makes the adventure. It's not necessarily the... And the other thing is a lot of interstate travel is just faster than that bike wants to go all day. So you take the two lanes, you take the back roads that, that people tell you about, and that's a whole nother experience. If you were riding a modern bike... Would you have done the book? I mean, I probably would have tried, but it would have been completely different. Uh, the doors swing wide open for conversation when you when you ride one of the, the old ones. It's just a conversation starter. So you, your foot in the door from there and some really great relationships come about just by having this old piece of junk to talk about. Your trip has been described as a, um, a personal sea of change in a period of great self-discovery. Can you talk about that? Well, sure. I think you know the context of, of what I was going through at the time. So uh, 
if you can imagine, there's a lot of things catching up with me on the road, but, um, I think, I think there's just a, there's a pace we have to take things in if, if we're really going to digest life and not just get caught up in the race and the, the life maintenance of it all. Today's society is just, you're a battery to it and you're going to burn yourself out. And, um, when you're riding distances and spanning distance, you, you, you have a perspective. You get a perspective because the things start to sink in along the way. Uh, I feel like I'm doing a bad job of explaining this, but um, my mind doesn't work real well sitting still. It, it takes things on too quickly, and, and I get overwhelmed by infinite possibilities that, that pop up. But when you're on a bike, you're forced to kind of deal with those things at a speed that the environment is passing you by. It feels, it feels like the object and the subject kind of come together. It's, it's very thin. I mean, that, that whole union of objects and subject is, I mean, that's what all the mantras and <laughs> shaman talk about, uh, but it really happens. It really happened for me there. And, uh, I settled in and figured some things out for myself in, in those thousands of miles. And I feel like I've got a grasp on it now. And I, I turned it into a book form and, um, some of these broader concepts that were those infinite, uh, possibilities are now, I feel like I, I have them kind of cataloged and organized in my life. Is there was or was there a time uh, or, or a, a place on this adventure that you could tell us a story about that would sort of really describe the adventure to the listener? Well, I mean, yeah, I, 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 let me think about that. There's, there's there's one story that's not in the book that I could tell you that's really good, and this this is more of a the the spiritual adventure, I guess, uh, life's little, <laughs> little elliptical, uh, tricks it plays on you. But, uh, on my way back, when I was sitting there with the content that I had been creating and the story that unfolded, um, I, there's a cafe on main street. It's a small town, mind you. And, um, it's kind of the only place where there was some cultural life happening. And, uh, they had Wi-Fi and a print shop, which was great because I could print some of the photos and look at them in print that I had been working on and creating. And, and I could also sit down and write and make contact with the outside world again. So I was spending a lot of time there and, uh, in the door, one of those days walked my fifth grade teacher and, uh, this was the man that had told my parents that he was retiring from teaching because of me. Uh, and that was directly why I got sent to private school and pulled out of the public school system. I feel like, you know, that that was a misdirection in my life that I, I did not enjoy for a while. It took me a while to get, uh, okay with that. But 
I guess I had been harboring and holding some some of that stuff against him, and I knew that I had been a hell of a student for him. So he walked in, and I knew he was sizing me up, and I was sitting over there. And, and uh, finally, this happened several days, like several days in a row. And he was writing something. He was very into it. You know, I could tell he had references and notes. And I was sitting alone, and he was sitting alone, and I was like, oh, what the hell? Let's go talk to him. Uh, let's go talk to him. So I walk up to his table, and I said, hey, do you remember me? And he goes, no, but I've been trying to figure you out. And I, he goes, were you one of my students? And I said, yeah, I was. And uh, I, I asked him, what are, what are you working on? And he goes, well, I'm, I'm writing a, a book. He's like, I'm, I'm working on my memoirs. And he goes, what are you doing? I go, I, I'm doing the same thing, actually. And uh, we sat down that day, and I'm here with my fifth grade teacher who has struggled you know, for a long time with terrible kids like me to teach them how to read and write. And now I'm, I'm writing a book and we're debating the art of the personal essay, not debating, but we're discussing it. And, uh, I'm learning from him and, and the same thing he's learning from me. Uh, and then I, I tell him who I was. He just couldn't <laughs> believe it. Uh, and, uh, anyway, that, that came full circle and, um, it was really a special experience and there are pieces of the process when I was writing this book that came from those conversations with my fifth grade teacher sitting at that table in my hometown. From this trip, you produced this book called Too Far Gone. It is a coffee table book, 248 pages, 350 black and white photographs. It's a hardcover or a 10 by 10 inch book. I got to tell you, Todd, that when we got this book and I opened it up, it is the most unique book I've ever seen. It's it's so unique that I thought you put this together just for us. (laughs) It it really, you know, it has the feel when you open it up, these tip-ins that you've done as well. It looks like it was made for the person that gets it. And, you know, and I, I started off thinking, wow, you've put a lot of work into, you know, all these little tip-ins that you've done and copies of letters and things like that for us. Well, I came up with it and uh, you're exactly right. that It was for the people that I met along the way. That's why the letters are bound into it. That's why. And, and the first time they got the they got the real letter and the book, the first seven copies made went to the to the letters in the book. I, I mailed it straight to them. And um, like I said, it, I, I didn't have a playbook for this thing. It, it, it wrote itself and it came about uh, along the way. I just left with the idea of, well, I agreed to do a book with a company. I don't know what it's going to be. I've got to deal with some pretty heavy stuff in my life right now. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this, but I'm going to use the excuse to go take a trip and uh it very the trip very much became all about the people that i met along the way and reconnected with and so this was me giving back or trying to kind of i i tell their story and and give a little back to them because they gave so much to me 
the book is is all black and white photographs. The the photographs are incredible. And they're so iconic. Like for anyone who likes motorcycles, you don't have to like choppers or Harley Davidsons. If you like motorcycles and motorcycle culture, this book just draws you right in. Why black and white photos? Um, well, we experimented with the color, but I, I had shot half the project on black and white film. So I didn't I didn't like the split between the two in the story. It just seemed um, distracting. So uh, we just decided to go black and white with everything, which kind of created me more work for me editorially. But uh, in the in the long run, though, I th- also think it was cheaper in printing. This is a very expensive and complicated book to make, as you can. The, the construction alone was a real challenge that uh, that David from Ginkgo Press took on personally and figured out in a very short amount of time, which was impressive. But um, the direction of taking the black and of, of black and white uh, was kind of navigated by by the Ilford film that I shot, and um, you know, the, it, it's I, I wanted to jump back to what you said about you know that it's not just about Harley's or, or one of the little uh, pigeonholes and motorcycle culture that I'm up against that with the cover. I feel like people see that and they're like, ah, another jumper book, whatever. There's so little about motorcycles in, in the book. And I tried to keep it that way that, you know, somebody who didn't have a real connection with bikes could still take an adventure and not, not kind of be outrun by that. Uh, but what's been hard I'm very glad that you read it because people buy the book for the photos, which I'm very happy that they do. But um, I always know if someone's read it or not because they they come back and and we talk about it. (laughs) Todd, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Well, thanks, man. I've been speaking with Todd Bluebaugh about his new book called Too Far Gone, published by Ginkgo Press, Inc. And I got to tell you that the book is is very impressive when you look at it. And the price on the thing doesn't reflect the book. This is a coffee table book that I think you normally expect to be like $65 or something. They sell it for $35. Anyway, you can uh, get it where books are sold or you can visit them at www.ginkgopress.com. up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and of course you the listener don't forget to drop by our facebook page and like our page if you haven't already you just have to search for adventure rider radio on facebook and of course this episode and all our episodes are available for you to download for free at our website Drop by www.adventureriderradio.com. And of course, our Raw show is on there as well. Remember, Raw is a separate show, the roundtable discussions we do once a month. You'll have to subscribe separately for that. Again, free to download. Hey, if you'd like to help the show out, we've built this show on a model of advertising plus some donations. If you can drop by the website and click on the donate button, we would surely appreciate it. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on our Raw show, that monthly show that I mentioned. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. 
Thanks very much. See you next week. Hi, I'm Carol DeVal, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs>